Well, good morning. Happy Sunday. Glad to be with you guys here this morning. Um, as we begin, I think all of us know what it's like to want, waiting and wanting for something in the future to happen that isn't here yet. So if you're like me, I'm a big sports fan, but I'm not a baseball guy, so this is the worst time of year. There is nothing on, and you're just waiting for football or anything to happen, and uh, you're coming up. Although it's really bad right now, it's really exciting because in a couple of months, there's like a three or four-week stretch where everything is on at the same time, and so that's pretty awesome. Or, you know, we've all been trained by Amazon at this point that if we order something and it takes longer than two days, it's like, where is this thing at? Come on. You know, I can't wait for it. That can be really hard. Or if you have a vacation or a getaway or a trip coming up and you're longing for that to happen, you, you want that thing to occur. Now, what's interesting is when you read the scriptures, uh, the Bible also does this same very thing when it talks about the biblical authors, sometimes when they talk about the day of the Lord or when Jesus is going to return or wanting to be with Jesus. When you read the scriptures, there are portions and passages where you get the same sort of yearning and desire. And what's weird, or maybe for us, if you're a follower of Jesus, is when you read passages like that, you kind of think, well, I should want that too. Like I should want to be with Jesus and I should want him to return and all these sort of things. But depending on your season of life, you kind of feel some sort of way about it. Because at the same time, you might be like, well, I like my family, I like my kids, or I like my job, or in my case, I won't have a job. And so it's like, well, what, what am I going to do then? I don't know. Right? So there can be things that maybe make us not want Jesus to return quite as quickly. Or last month, um, I did a few weddings, and for some reason, none of those, all those couples were like, if Jesus wants to wait just a little bit, we're fine with that. You know, they all, I don't know why, but they were all kind of like, we, we can wait a little bit. But on the flip side, if you are in a hard season of life, if you're going through something really, really difficult, well, you could be wanting things to end. You could be wanting your difficult season to pass. You could want Jesus to do something when it seems like your world is ending. It is not what you want it to be. And so today at New City, as we continue through the Gospel of Mark, we're going to be looking at this question. What do we need to know when it seems like our world is ending? What do we need to know when it seems like our world is ending? This is really part two. Last week, we started uh, in Mark chapter 13. Jesus is one of the most, well, it is the most confusing passage in Mark and a very confusing passage in the scriptures where he's leaving the temple with his disciples. This is Passion Week, the last week of Jesus' life, likely a Tuesday night when this conversation is happening. They're leaving the temple and the disciples are marveling at how massive and beautiful and grand the temple is. And Jesus says it's going to be destroyed. And so they start asking questions about how that's going to happen because, again, in their mind, if the temple in Jerusalem is destroyed, that also surely means that God's going to come back. And so we are looking in that. This is really part two. And so if you have a Bible today, we're going to be in Mark chapter 13. And we're looking at this, what happens at the end of the world? And what does Jesus want us to know? So uh, just like last week, if you were here or if you're watching online, it's a little bit more information driven than normal because there's a lot of confusing things here. But even in that, I still think there's things that we can learn. And so again, the question we're looking at this morning is what do we need to know when it seems like our world is ending? Because certainly to a Jew in the first century, if the temple in Jerusalem was going to be destroyed, which it ended up being destroyed in 70 AD, well, you would think clearly the world is over as you know it. And so again, Mark chapter 13, the first half, he starts talking about the Jerusalem temple being destroyed. And then he starts talking about his return. And he's going to continue kind of going back and forth. Here's what it says, Mark chapter 13, verse 24. Jesus then says this. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not shed its light. The stars will be falling from the sky and the powers in heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. 
He will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. So what Jesus is doing here is he's using all sorts of Old Testament references and describing what it'll look like when his return takes place. Now, of course, what gets really confusing when you read passages like this or in Revelation or in other parts of Scripture when it talks about the day of the Lord or God's judgment or God's returning, oftentimes a lot of imagery is used to try to convey a concept that's otherwise difficult to understand. And so what can happen is that if we misunderstand what this imagery represents, it can lead to all sort of inaccurate interpretations or understandings. And so what we always want to do when we read stuff like this is try to figure out what is in other parts of Scripture, typically the Old Testament, did these symbols mean so that we can better understand what it's talking about or what Jesus is trying to say in this passage? So, for example, if you were to read the Old Testament, you would see various times where it talks about the sun being darkened or the moon not shedding its light or the stars falling from heaven. And it's taken from various Old Testament passages, typically referring to one of two things. Uh, One, the day of the Lord or when God is going to return. Or sometimes it was associated when the Israelites were going to battle and God was going to grant them victory. And he would use this kind of language of the cosmos to show that they are going to be okay or they are going to be victorious. In other words, what's happening here and what Jesus is likely trying to tell us, it's not that creation is going to go maybe into confusion or it's going to devolve into this chaos when Jesus returns, but rather the cosmos itself, the universe itself is submitting itself to Jesus when he is appearing. In other words, in this passage, It's not so much that it's a sign that Jesus is going to return, but more so when Jesus does return, even creation is going to bow down to him. Because he's returning, that is why this is happening. Now, this is an important, again, culturally, not just for them, but even somewhat so for us, but even more so for them, because stars and astrology were often studied for divination purposes and trying to figure out what the gods are wanting you to do. And so when the biblical writers were talking about creation bowing down to Jesus and his power or to God's power, it's trying to say that God is in control of all of these things. I mean, even today, you know, might be subdued a little bit, but we still have, you know, um, you know, your, your astrology sign and, you know, this planet is here when I was born. So this is what it's going to be for my life. And what Jesus is trying to say is that God, that he is over all of these things. All of it is under his control. And when he returns, creation is going to bow down to him. And then, of course, he says something else that's confusing in verse, uh, what is it, 26. He then says, the son of man is coming in clouds with great power. So again, the question for us is, what does this actually mean? Like, is it going to be like a rainy day and there's a bunch of clouds and Jesus is going to come down? Or do clouds often typically represent something else in the Old Testament? Uh, And of course, we can ask when Jesus comes back again, if there's clouds, if it's a globe, like how is this going to work? Like, what if I'm here and he's over there? Like, am I going to have any idea what's going on? And so again, the question for us is, what does the Bible mean when it talks about God coming on the clouds? So real quick, I'll explain it this way. For example, you see this a lot in Revelation. So in Revelation chapter 6, verse 14, it says this, The sky was split apart like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved from its place. Now again, in this part of Revelation, it's also talking about Jesus' return. And it also refers to the cosmos or the universe more like an analogy where a stage curtain is being rolled up or being opened from both sides, and the actors are being revealed for all to see. And so however this happens in Revelation, however this happens in Mark, when Jesus is coming back, it's going to be some sort of way where the heavenly dimensions are revealed for all people, 
regardless of where you are located or where you are. And so what this doesn't mean is that Jesus is going to return in New York City or Hong Kong or some rural place that no one's ever been to. And like the rest of us have no idea what's going on. That's not what it's saying here. How is it actually going to work in our globe, geography, physical reality? The scriptures don't tell us, but it's meant to tell us that clearly this new dimension will be different. So all that to say, in the same way in verse 26, when Jesus talking, talks about coming down in the clouds, it shouldn't be viewed as rain clouds, but rather in the Old Testament, you see this very often that the clouds or a cloud represents God's power or his presence or his glory. You see this with Moses. You see this with the Israelites going through the, the, uh, going through the desert about God's power and revealing himself in a cloud. And so what's happening here is that Jesus can say that what this only means is that God's presence, again, is not just located in this temple that's going to be destroyed, but it's located in me. And when you see me, just like the glory cloud, you will see God's present. Now, mind you, again, all of this is happening, and Jesus is explaining all of this when he's about to be beaten, betrayed, and killed. So this is Tuesday, really late Thursday night, or really early Friday morning is when he's going to be arrested. And so he's wanting them to know all these things are going to happen. It looks like the world is going to be ending, but it is not the end. <laughs> and the last thing we'll say, then we'll keep going. The Old Testament, again, often speaks of gathering the exiles and captives to Jerusalem on the day of the Lord. When God returns, everyone will return to Jerusalem. There's a lot of references about that. You can Google it. We won't get into them here. But yet here, what's interesting is that Jesus seems to be saying that everyone is going to be gathered to him. All people from all ends of the earth are going to be gathered to him. That in the midst of all the chaos and suffering that is going to be endured, that he is still going to be victorious over all of it. And that's the first thing we see here is we're talking about what do we need to know when it seems like the world is ending, or at least our world is ending. We're going through really difficult times. What Jesus is telling us is that our Messiah is victorious. Our Messiah just means anointed one. That's what Jesus came to be. He came to be our savior. And what he is saying is that he is victorious, that he is going to win, even when it looks like everything is falling apart, even it looks, when it looks like evil or suffering or chaos is winning, he is going to win. Which means if you also want to be victorious over these things, then you must be with him. It's not about your effort or your trying really hard or your doing all these things that Jesus is victorious in and of himself and that when we follow and submit our lives to him, we also one day will partake in this victory and has nothing to do with us and it all has to do with him. And what this made me think of, I was trying to, I was like, oh, this is interesting. You know, we're victorious because of Jesus, not because of us. And I'm a sports guy. I wonder, like, some of the biggest people in sports history who did nothing but won a lot of championships. Like, has that happened, right? And so I was Googling, and I found in the NBA, there's this guy by the name of uh, Jim Luskatov. That's his name. And he played nine seasons for the Boston Celtics from the mid-50s to the mid-60s. This is with their heyday. He won seven championships. And he averaged 6.2 points and 5.6 rebounds per game which if you're not a basketball person, you are not the reason they're winning the championship. Like, you're just not. And then, of course, in the playoffs, since he was a bench player, his, his stats went even lower. But in nine seasons, he won seven championships just because of the team he was drafted on. And to make it better, they also ended up retiring his jersey after he retired, 
Which means, again, if you're not a sports person, if you're supposed to be really good and like really, uh, uh, you, you change the organization, you get your number retired and no one else can ever wear it and it's, got, it's hanging in the rafter somewhere, this joker had six points, five rebounds, seven championships, numbers retired, right? Anywhere else, you would have never heard of this man. But because he got drafted on the right team, he contributed a little bit. He wins all of these championships. For context, Michael Jordan only has six, right? And so, like, that's what's happening. Or, or this is a better, probably a better one. I looked up this guy by the name of uh, Rohan Davey. He played for the New England Patriots in the mid-2000s. He played for three seasons. He was the third-string quarterback. He won two Super Bowls. And here were his NFL stats. He was 8 of 19, so less than 50% completion percentage, which is not good, for 88 yards. And then he rushed for six times in his career for a negative five yards. And he has two championships, now, clearly, he just happened to be in the right situation at the right time. And what you and I need to remember, what Jesus is telling us here, is that he is victorious in and of himself, and yet he invites us in. He's victorious, and he will prevail, and he invites us in. It doesn't matter how uncool you think you are, how full of shame and regret you might have in your life over the decisions that you have made. Jesus wins. He's victorious. And he is inviting us to partake in that, no matter what life might look like for you at the time. And then he continues, Mark chapter 13, verse 28, by saying this. He said, learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its branches becomes tender and sprouts leaves, you know that the summer is near. In the same way, when you see these things happening, recognize that he is near at the door. Truly, I tell you, verse 30, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Now, again, this is where it gets confusing. It seems to be, at least according to my understanding here, that Jesus is not talking about his return in these verses, but he's talking about the fall of Jerusalem again. We say this because in verse 28, when he says, when these things are happening, you'll know it's coming. Because in verse 4, the disciples literally asked him, what are the signs that these things are going to occur? And their question originally was about the temple in Jerusalem being destroyed. And so what he's saying is just like figs on a fig tree means summer is near, so do some of the things we talked about last week in Mark 13 mean that the temple is about to be destroyed. Now, again, what also makes this confusing is, again, he says this, that this generation will not pass away. And, of course, if he is, return, if he is uh, rather referring to his return, um, well, then the question is, did he get it wrong? Because it's been almost 2,000 years. Clearly, this generation did pass away. Or, again, more likely... He's referring to the temple destruction here, where many in this generation did live to see it happened. And he's using this, again, this temple destruction also as an analogy or as a teaching to also talk about what it's going to be like before he returns. Because again, in their minds, in the disciples' minds, the temple destroyed, meaning God was, was returning, but that does not necessarily mean that that's what he's saying here. Now, again, all that to say, it's kind of confusing. I, I think that this is all that to say, the most important thing that we need to take from this section, and that God is going to return. And when he does, Jesus is telling us that his words will not pass away, that he will always be. And so when it seems like the world is ending, when it seems like their world is ending, his teachings will endure forever. When the temple is destroyed, when Jerusalem is no longer what it currently is, when he was telling them this, his words will still be true. 
And that when Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead, and when he recreates his kingdom, his words will still be true, that when all else fails, he will still be. And so again, I think this is what Jesus wants us to know here, is that our Messiah will always be. He will always be. In the good times and in the bad times, in the destruction, and when life feels like it is ending as you know it, he will still be true. Now, again, some of us have hard things, have had things happen to us where it felt like at that time our world was ending, and or can think of situations where if this happened, it would seem like the world as I know it is going to be over, and yet what Jesus is saying here is that I will still be there, even in the midst of the chaos and the destruction and the suffering. And you know what? It makes me think about, again, especially when this backdrop is the fact that Jesus is literally about to suffer and die to prove to his people that he loves them. For some reason, it reminded me of this quote by Tim, Qu- Tim Keller, and it will be on the screen. He puts it this way. <clears throat> he says, to be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well... A lot like being loved by God. Now, why do we say this? Again, if you have felt abandoned by others, you need to know that God will not abandon you. When it seems like your world is ending, God is still there. Because why? Remember, the context of this is that Jesus is literally about to give his life for his disciples and us. But his disciples, and in the last supper, where they're together for the last time, they're all saying, we're going to be with you till the end, no matter what happens. And within six hours, they all abandoned him. Every single one, and yet he still goes through with his plan to be a sacrifice and to be a redeemer of the world. That even in times when we go our own way and make our own decisions and say, God, I don't know if I fully trust you, he is still there. He will always be. And then he says this in verse 32. He says, now concerning that day or the hour, no one knows Neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Now, again, kind of confusing here. Here it seems to be that he is, again, referring back to his return, because when he uses the term day or the term hour, it's often in the Old Testament. Old Testament has eschatological meaning, which is a fancy way to say into the world when God is going to come back. So it seems to be what he is referring to here. When he comes back, nobody will know when it's going to happen. Even Jesus himself here says that he does not No, no one knows except God the Father. Now, this is kind of confusing and a little bit of a paradox, right? Because Jesus, who has just been talking about how the temple is going to be destroyed and here's going to be the signs and that he is going to come back one day to redeem, to save the world and recreate all of creation, is now saying, but he doesn't know exactly when it's going to happen. (laughs) The question is how? Like, how do we make sense of this? How does he not know? Well, again, it's important to remember to point out that Jesus is both God And while he is on earth, he is also man. That he knew all things, yet still learned things. The gospel talked about him growing in wisdom and understanding of the scriptures. And so clearly he also learned while he was here. It seems to be when you read the gospel accounts that he could call to mind anything that he wanted to, but yet regularly also at the same time lived on human knowledge. And then in here, as we're seeing here, as was the case while on earth, he is submitting to the Father's will or to the Father's timing. Now, what's also interesting about verse 32, just to point out that this is the only time where Jesus explicitly calls himself the Son. Uh, his most favorite title, for, his favorite title for himself that he uses a lot in the Gospel of Mark and all the Gospels is this, he calls himself the Son of Man, which is essentially like a mysterious third person way of describing himself as God who has come. But here, 
He's extremely clear about who he is, that he is the son. But, however, this also goes with how Mark betrays, or portrays Jesus throughout the gospel, that he never claims the prerogatives of divinity for himself. It is always to serve people, and to love people, to care for people, and to humbly follow the Father's will. And so here in this exchange, instead of telling people when it's going to happen, he's rather being an example to show them what does it look like to trust the Father. Again, here the disciples want a sign. They want a practical answer, as all of us would. But instead, Jesus responds by pointing people to the Father and saying, you have to trust him. And Jesus even himself is submitting himself, his life to the Father. This is yet another example of him doing what he asks us to do, which is what? To walk and trust the Lord. And so here, instead of giving them what they think they need or what they want, he's actually giving them what they need. That having this information is not going to change the mission or what I'm asking you to do, which is to walk with the Lord and to trust him. And so what we also see in this text is that our Messiah is our example, that he is also our example, that he shows us, he doesn't just tell us, here's what you need to do, but he actually practically lives it out for us. And because of that, we can actually see what it does look like to walk in a way that we submit ourselves to God and to trust him instead of just trying to get all the answers that we think will satisfy us at the moment. This makes me think of my son, Roman, who is four years old. And he is like me in a lot of ways. I mean, he's Dylan 2.0. He's really competitive. That's why I'm praying that he's more athletic than I was because it gets really frustrating when you're really competitive and not very good. Um, he likes to be in charge. He doesn't apologize well. He doesn't, like, you know, all these sort of things. However, there is one distinct thing that makes him a better human being than I will ever be. And I'm not saying this because he's my kid and, like, you're supposed to say your kids are better than you. Um, but he has an example that makes him much better than I am. That he's like me in every way, except he is very affectionate and kind and loving. Like when I was growing up, I was like, I'm not cuddling with you. Don't touch me. I'm not going to say I love you. I mean, unless I have to, but like whatever. Like it's too emotional. I'm not going to do that. But he has an older sister who's extremely sweet and kind, who he loves. And he has a mother who's extremely sweet and kind. And so unlike me, he will sit on your lap. He will hug you. He'll give you a kiss. He'll tell you, I love you. He'll actually apologize. And I'm like, this is amazing. But why? Because he actually has an example to follow. That's what he does. He's a better person than I am because of the example that has been set in his life with his sister. And here, what we see in this text is that Jesus is showing us what it looks like to actually trust in the Lord. Not just to have your answers, but to walk with him. Again, we want answers. Jesus wants a relationship. What he, and again, what he does even in the Garden of Gethsemane, we're going to see this in a couple of weeks, before he's going to give his life, he's praying to the Father, Lord, take this cup from me, but not my will, but your will be done. He is submitting himself to the Father. He is our example. And then he says this, verse 33, the last section, he gives him one final teaching. Mark 13, verse 33, it says this, watch, be alert, for you don't know when the time is coming. It is like a man on a journey who left his house, gave authority to his servants, gave each one his work, and commanded the doorkeeper to be alert. Therefore, be alert, since you don't know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening or at midnight or at the, crowning of the, or the crowing of the rooster or early in the morning. Otherwise, when he comes suddenly, he might find you asleep. Verse 37, and what I say to you... I say to everyone, be alert. 
In other words, what he's saying here is that there are temptations can come in many different forms in many different ways. He's talked about it again in the first part of Mark 13, if you were here last week, where he talks about false prophets who bring false hopes or mistaken signs can bring fears and anxiety because you thought it meant this thing, but then it didn't happen how you would think. Or the desire for security can lead us to forsake faithfulness because understandably we're just trying to survive. And so we can do things that maybe aren't the most wise or faithful decisions. But Jesus says in all of these things, whatever happens... I want you to stay alert, which means stay faithful, because no one will know when Jesus is coming, and I want you to be ready. And so, again, to be clear as a side note, I just want to, I think it's worth us mentioning here that when Jesus, predicting when Jesus will return, therefore, is to do something that even Jesus himself would not do. Even he wouldn't do it. I mean, literally, this could be in the prophet, or in the, in the, um, in the case of a false prophet, or it could be an example of a false prophet, is someone who, and he warns about this in the first half of Mark 13, that's saying, if this happens, that means this is going to happen. It means Jesus is going to return. Jesus saying is, don't do that, and don't trust those people. Again, having questions about the end of the world and wondering if COVID or this war or this means this, that's totally fine. But to say with authority that this means this is going to happen, means this is going to happen, is to do what Jesus not only wouldn't do himself, but actually warns against. And then in verse 37, he ends by saying this, and what I say to you, I say to everyone. Again, originally, Jesus is having this conversation with four of his disciples that are like, you're saying the temple is going to be destroyed. What in the world? And so he has this conversation with them, but he wants this conversation to be shared with other people. That hard, he wants us to know that hard times are going to come, but in your world, many times might seem like it is going to be over, but don't give up hope. Because the one who is over all things will one day return and make all things right. It's going to seem hopeless. It's going to seem miserable. But I am still there. I am victorious. And I will return. Again, the question before us this morning is what do we need to know when it seems like our world is ending, because it's certainly hearing these things would have felt like this to the disciples. If I could sum up really all of Mark 13 and also this morning, here's what I would say. That you and I need to remember that our hope is not in a moment, but in a Messiah. It is not in a moment, but in a Messiah. Listen, you might be anxious about knowing when Jesus is going to return, or you might have no idea and are just anxious about making it through tomorrow or making it through this <coughs> current difficult season of life for you. Or maybe your moment is the wedding day that you're hoping for, or maybe it's getting that job, or making enough money for that thing, or having security, or being able to move into this place, or to this house, whatever it might be. Jesus is trying to tell us that our true hope and our true dependence is the same. Or maybe I put it this way, you could be confused on a lot of things that we said today or last week if you were here, but here's ultimately what you and I need to know, that you have a God who loves you, who sees you, <laughs> and ultimately is coming for you. He loves you, he sees you, and he's coming for you. Our hope is not in a moment or a thing that could happen. Our hope is in a Messiah who loves us, cares for us, and is coming back no matter how bleak and dark things might look. And so if I could make this really practically real quick, so what do we need to do knowing this information? Well, there's a couple of things. Um, I would encourage all of us to pursue Jesus within a community, right? To learn and to trust and to encourage one another so that we can remain hopeful and trust in him. Here's the thing. Oftentimes going to a community group, going to church on a Sunday, these moments are not going to change your life. But consistent faithfulness in these things will remind you and I of who God is and how much he loves us. <coughs> and so... 
If you're new around here at New City Church, uh, well, I would encourage you to sign up for the Discover Launch that we're doing next week. Uh, on the back of that Connect card, just check partnership, drop it off. It's low-key. We're not asking you to commit to anything, but we want you to know what we believe, what we do, how we exist, so that you can know this is the church for you. Or maybe if you've been here for a while, you need to join a group, or you need to serve, or you need to have community around you to remind you that our hope is not in us and our things, but in Jesus. Or maybe you and I just need to remember that life is fleeting. This does not make the difficult things we go through any easier. But when we remember and know that this is not the end, that this is not all that there will be, it encourages us, encourages us because Jesus is going to come back and make all things right. Or maybe just this, that you and I need to remember that we are saved not by what we know, but by who we know. We are saved not by trying to figure out all these things in Mark 13 or in the book of Revelation or various places that are confusing. And we're trying to figure it out and try to be really smart. And if we get it wrong, what happens? That is not what redeems us. That is not what saves us. It's Jesus. Right? The good news of the gospel is that we have a Messiah who has come to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. In the midst of our brokenness and our shame, the things that we have done, maybe the things that have been done to us. We have a God that loves us that sees us, that is over all things, and is victorious over all things, and it is inviting us in, not based on our merit, but based on his. And he, in just three days, is going to be tried illegally, suffer a, a gruesome death, and defeat sin and darkness for us, so that we can receive the grace and mercy of God. Or put another way, when it seems like your world is ending, what the cross shows us is that Jesus is saying, I am here. I am here. And so again, this morning, no matter what you are walking through, no matter what difficulties you might be facing, you today might just need to know and just to remember that Jesus is there. And he might seem distant, and you might have a ton of questions, and you might have a ton of doubts, but it is not the end. Be alert, be faithful, because he is coming soon to save us and redeem us out of his love for us. Our hope is not in a moment of a thing that we're trying to accomplish or achieve. Our hope is in a Messiah who loves us, who came for us, and who gave his life for us so that we can partake in his victory.